John chapter 16, starting at verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? Why, we don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I mean when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when, you will no longer use, when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father <clears throat> and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Sarah, thank you very much for reading for us. We do say funny things to one another, don't we? Uh, when, um, when, th when things are troublesome, just think of the extraordinary things that we say. Cheer up, it could be worse. I mean, it's not enormously helpful, is it? or tomorrow's another day, or there's no point crying over spilt milk, or look, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I mean, they're just weird little phrases that we bandy around uh, in the midst of trouble, in this sort of idea that somehow that's going to help. You, you can almost uh, imagine uh, the kind of response you get from the cynic uh, who would say, yes, there is indeed a light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's a train coming. Uh, or some other little quip in return, because they just don't help that much. But what would be a distinctively Christian way to respond to trouble? 
what, what might we understand to be Christian things to say to another person in their difficulties? Well, actually, the, the answer to that question uh, is found very richly uh, here in John's Gospel and in this particular section. Because, as we've seen over recent months, this is a part of uh, John's Gospel where there is trouble, where the disciples are bothered in all sorts of ways, uh, because uh, Judas has left to betray, to betray Jesus, and the death of Jesus uh, is only hours away. Within 24 hours, uh, Jesus will be on the cross. Uh, and so right through this section, it's a long speech from Jesus, interrupted by short questions from his disciples. But right through from chapter 14 uh, through to the end of the speech here in chapter 16, uh, all trouble abounds. Look, look at some of these references. Save you're looking it up. Back at the very beginning, do not let your hearts be troubled, uh, Jesus says. First verse of chapter 14. And then a little while later on, uh, Jesus says in verse 27, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And then as he rounds up his speech before he turns to prayer, the beginning of chapter 17, uh, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. The disciples are troubled, and into their trouble, uh, Jesus speaks. Uh, they are confused, uh, at worst despairing. Uh, they pepper Jesus with questions. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 14, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Or in verse 8, Philip saying, Lord, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. Or again in verse 22, uh, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? They can't make sense of it. They're troubled and confused. Uh, and the opening of our section has a similar tone to it. Uh, pick it up with me, uh, verse 16 of chapter 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you'll see me no more? And then, after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. I don't know how it was, but it wouldn't be a bad guess, I think, to imagine that maybe at this point, uh, Jesus and the disciples are walking through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, headed to the garden where soon Jesus will be arrested. And you know how it is. I mean, there's a, there's a group of 12 of them, uh, and they're wandering their way through, I guess, narrow streets. Uh, and you know what it is. You don't walk in a big group of 12. Uh, they're in little bunches, talking together. Can you picture that scene? Uh, and maybe a conversation breaks out, and, uh, and one of the disciples can hear something, and so they drop back and join the people behind because they want to pick up on something that's being said. And then they notice somebody in front, and there's an animated conversation, and so they hurry to catch up and join that conversation. And there's Jesus out at the front, leading the band, and he catches snatches of the conversation from the groups behind him. And he knows their confusion. 
he hears their despair. And then maybe a point comes when he stops. Perhaps the streets have opened up into a large square and he turns and he waits for all the stragglers to catch up. And once they've all gathered together, he begins to speak. Verse 19. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Here's our first uh, heading as we work through this. An unremovable joy. A big question tucked in here is... uh, Clearly, Jesus is speaking of, of going away and coming back, but, but which coming back does he have in mind? Is he talking about the, the coming back in, on the day of Pentecost, with the, the coming in the person of the Holy Spirit? Does he have in mind the coming back at the end of time, when the second coming, uh, when he returns in glory? Actually, I don't think it's either of those. I think it's much more immediate. I think the going and the coming back that he has in mind is the going to the cross, going to the grave, and then the coming back of reappearing to them as the resurrected Jesus. And mostly I think that's because he's frequently referred to the fact that in a little while he's going to the cross. He's used the same phrase uh, to speak of his death. And the fact that he says that they will see him sounds like the physical appearances that John is going to record uh, in a few chapters' time at the end of this gospel. It fits with the despair, the the, the grief, the mourning, the tears that they will experience after Jesus has died. That grim, desperate Saturday when it feels as though everything has come undone, that it is just ruin, it is just loss, and their master, who they had so much hope in, is gone. And then the great joy, the overwhelming joy, as he appears to them in the locked room. And John will say uh, that they are overjoyed. But, but, but perhaps even more persuasive than that, to tell us what Jesus is referring to, I think is the analogy that he uses here. You see it, verse 21, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. And and the thing about the, the, the image, the picture that Jesus is using is that it is the same pain that produces distress as produces joy. At least it should. 
the reason that we need to be so much in prayer for Claire and Sam at the moment is because that didn't happen last Sunday evening. And for Claire, the agony of labor uh, produced a stillborn child. That's not the way that it should be. But usually, it does. Usually, the agonies of labor achieve new life. A baby is born. Joy, because now, a life. You have your child in your arms. You hold it. It's yours. And the agony is forgotten. Overtaken by joy. Well, Jesus is saying the resurrection functions just like that. The moment of joy that brings to an end the agonies of the cross. When they see the resurrected Jesus, all of the agonies of the preceding hours are eclipsed by the joy that is then theirs. Because this is what it was all about. This is what it's achieved. This, this resurrection, this new life, all of the promises that now lie ahead because Jesus is risen from the dead. Death has been defeated. Sin overcome. Forgiveness is theirs. All of that is now true. All of that is now certain because Christ is risen from the dead. This life, this victory, this gift. Of course, the cross is awful, just like the agonies of labor are awful. As the disciples gazed on the agony of Jesus on the cross, the horror of seeing Jesus suffer, suffer even separation from his own Father in heaven. Almost too terrible to bear. But now look. Now look what it was accomplishing. This agony was leading to this, to resurrection life, to the promise of a new creation. What joy that brings. A joy that no one can take away. Because the gift is yours for eternity. Nothing can get in the way now because death has been defeated. Death's the only thing that can interrupt and now, there is no death. Have we got that clear? If you're a believer this morning, you've got that clear about the Christian faith. That in Christ you have a gift that no one can remove from you. A promise that is utterly certain. A joy, therefore, that is unremovable. A joy, in other words, that, that kind of underpins, undergirds everything else. Whatever trouble you and I may face in this world, there is this unremovable, undergirding joy that can't be interfered with. You got that clear in your heart and in your mind? I was reminded this week of the story, perhaps some of you have read his account of it, uh, Richard Vermbrandt, uh, the Romanian pastor who, for his critique of the communist regime, was not only imprisoned, but brutally tortured uh, for year after year after year. 
Eight and a half years of imprisonment, eight and a half years uh, of terrible torture. And when he was finally released, when he was finally united with his wife and family, uh, here's uh, what he said. Don't think, he said, don't think I've simply come from misery to happiness. I've come from the joy of being with Christ in prison to the joy of being with him in my family. I'm not coming from strangers to my family, but from my brothers in Christ in prison to my family in Christ at home. Can you imagine being able to speak like that after eight and a half years of imprisonment and torture? That's what it looks like when a man or a woman has that undergirding joy in Christ that sits beneath all of the, the troubles, the griefs, the sorrows of the life that we have now. And hard and difficult as they can be, they are eclipsed, they're surpassed by that unmovable joy that sits beneath them. You got that? You felt that? So first, the unmovable joy. And then secondly, Jesus speaks of an unlimited promise. You pick it up in verse 23, where Jesus says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Again, it's not entirely clear what uh, Jesus is pushing at here at first. Um, who's asking, uh, and for what, and on what basis? Well, Jesus is telling us that there's a shifted relationship now, a shifted relationship for every believer uh, in the way in which they relate uh, to the Father in heaven. And the reason that that relationship between a believer and their Father in heaven has shifted is because of the work of the Son. You can't miss the emphasis, can you, on asking in my name. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you haven't asked for anything in my name. And if you've been around Christian circles, then uh, you will uh, have heard uh, people rounding off their prayers. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. In his name, amen. And there is a huge danger, isn't there, that in his name, amen, is a bit like your sincerely, amen. Yeah, it's just a little phrase that we just tuck in there and we don't quite know why. Well, this is why. Because of this chapter is why. Because Jesus tells us to make requests in my name on the basis of me and what I've done, on the basis of this going and coming back, on the basis of the fact that I have gone to the cross and shifted for all time the relationship of anyone who believes uh, with the Father in heaven. That's what it means to say, in my name, to speak to God on the basis uh, of Jesus. 
But, but it's important, isn't it, to realize that it's not as though Jesus is some kind of um, sort of heavenly postman. Um, and uh, we, we, we have our little prayer request and we, and we give it to Jesus and Jesus pops in his little prayer bag and he beetles off to the Father and then delivers it. It's easy to kind of imagine that he's, that he's got a go-between in that kind of way. Um, but Jesus specifically says that's not the way that it is. See that? Look, look at verse 25. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. It's not what he means. It's not that he's a go-between so that we speak to Jesus and then Jesus speaks to the Father for us. Jesus is telling them that it will be better than that. Jesus is saying that because of the cross, because of what Jesus does in dying, taking our punishment upon himself, because of that, every believer is going to have direct access to the Father. See in verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. We, we, we kind of get this idea, don't we, of, of, of being granted privileged access. Um, I don't know if you, you, you're, you're British, um, maybe, and, um, and so Prince Harry um, is your prince. Um, but you kind of know, don't you, that the fact that Prince Harry is your prince does not mean that, I don't know, seven o'clock tomorrow morning, and you're thinking to yourself, bank holiday, haven't got any plans, I'll go see Prince Harry. And I'll just drop in. He's my prince, after all. I'll have access. I mean, you know perfectly well that you don't have access. Well, you can't get to, to, to Prince Harry. Unless your name's Archie. Well, at one particular Archie, I suppose, not just any old Archie. Now, his son can get access, can't he? 7 a.m. on a bank holiday morning. 7 a.m. on any morning, actually. He has that right of access. And what Jesus is saying is that that's the gift when you get adopted, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, all the privileges of him as son can become ours. And again, have we got this? That, that you and I have access to the Father in heaven, to, to the creator of the cosmos, to the one who has existed for all eternity. You can speak to him directly. He's listening and will hear and will answer. You're going to want to pinch yourself and be astonished that that's the way that it is. Now, of course, when Jesus says uh, that we will be given whatever we ask in his name, we've got to be a little bit careful. We've got to make clear that God hasn't turned into some sort of Christian ver version of, of, of a sort of genie in the bottle. Um, and we can just throw any request and instantly get it, whatever it is, however mad or however foolish. No, he's a heavenly father. And fathers know that the right answer to some requests is no. You know, the, the, the boy that says, you know, Dad, can I play with that shiny new chainsaw? You know, the wise father says, no. 
And actually, that's a great blessing, isn't it? It's a great blessing to know that God loves us enough to answer the requests that will achieve his purposes and that will bless us. I I dread to think the chaos that my life would be in if every daft request that I've asked over the years had been instantly answered. It's a relief to know that he doesn't do that, but that he asks, that he answers those things that we ask that accord with his good purposes uh, for our lives. So pinch yourself. Remember that this is what you have, access to the Father and the promise that he will answer when we call on him in Christ's name. So pray. Do you remember back in September, if you are here then, that we made that a, a sort of a heartbeat for the year, didn't we, that we would pray, that we would grow in prayer. We've, we've looked at, at meditative prayer on our way through over these last six months. You're holding that. You're pressing on with that. You're seeking to grow in your prayer life. It'd be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? Press on in praying. Persevere in these things. Learn to pray. So first, an unremovable joy. Second, an unlimited promise. These are the things that Pei Wan has received by putting her faith in Christ. That's what's happened to her these last few months. She's moved from somebody who had no basis for an unremovable undergirding of joy, and now she does. She's moved from somebody who had no basis to call to a heavenly father and be heard and answered to somebody who does because she's become a believer, because she's trusted in these things. But, but, but third, ask, on what basis has Pei Wan, and indeed any of us, got these firm promises? See, thirdly, an undefeated saviour. It's a lovely little ending to, the, uh, to, to, to this chapter, isn't it? Um, Jesus delivers his summary of the gospel there in verse 28. I came from the Father and I entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. And the disciples are so chipper because they think, oh yeah, we've got this sorted now. Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Triumph, we're here, we've arrived. Discipleship, done it, got it, sorted Uh, And then you you hear, you can almost hear the bubble of self-confidence being popped in the next line, can't you? Do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Great disciples you'll be, yet I am not alone for my Father is with me. Gently and kindly and importantly, Jesus puts them in their place at this moment. Don't imagine this is all about you. Understand that this is all about me and the work that I'm going to do on your behalf. That's what Jesus is telling them at this point. I have told you these things, he says, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the thing, here's the truth at the heart of the Christian faith, it's not about us. Peace isn't me arriving at some great understanding. Peace isn't me working everything out and landing it with great theological sharpness. Peace isn't about me or you at all. Peace is about him and his gift to us. In him we have peace. Why? Because as Jesus himself puts it, I am the one who has overcome the world. So if, if as you work on in your discipleship, if you press on in your Christian life, if you find that your thinking is taking you in any other direction other than to the overcoming work of Jesus, then beware, because you're moving to the wrong place and you're moving to a place that leaves you very vulnerable. Come back to a faith that locates all of your hope, all of your confidence in him, in what he has done. Because that's the only source of an unremovable joy. That's the only basis for an unreserved promise. He's our source of joy. He's our basis for hope. Cheer up, it could be worse, really is not the best we have. You got that? We have so much more. Rejoice. Rejoice. Be joyful. For however hard the troubles are, and this world is full of hard troubles, we've seen some in this church this very last week, but however hard those troubles, do you know, I really wish you could have been with me last Sunday night and heard the things that Claire had to say as she rested her hand on her dead baby. I wish you could have been there and heard the beauty of her confidence in Christ that moment. It caused my soul to soar. And that is what we have in the worst of trouble. A promise that is unshakable because it's rooted in him. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. Let's pray together. Uh, what great promises, what great things uh, you have set before us. Oh Lord Jesus, how we praise you uh, that you have worked for our salvation. Uh, you have granted us uh, a joy that no one can take away uh, because it's not based on anything that we or anyone else does, but only on what you have done. And it is therefore sure and certain. Uh, we praise and thank you for that. Uh, we rest upon it afresh uh, this morning. Uh, we uh, rejoice uh, with Pei Wan. Uh, that she has taken hold of this great promise. And uh, those of us who are believing, we join with her afresh uh, in grasping these precious promises from Christ. 
and we praise you for him. Amen.